You are now listening to a brand new episode of Starfleet Escape Podcast, only on the Four-Eyed Radio Network, also known as the Starfleet Escape Podcast. Prepare for launch in three, two, one. Enjoy the ride. Welcome to the Starfleet Escape Podcast on the Four Eyed Radio Network, where we escape into the Star Trek universe. This is episode number 33 and is being recorded on January 10th, 2014. Today's topic is the Green Girl. I'm Eric. I'm Marty. And I'm Aaron. This episode is brought to you by America Joy Print Shop, official sponsor of the Four-Eyed Radio Network. For high-quality business cards, flyers, banners, cut vinyl, and more, visit americajoy.com. So today we have a special guest. Yes, we do. Today we have George Pappy, who is the director, writer, and producer of the Green Girl documentary. Welcome. Glad to have you aboard. Thank you. It's a real podcast. pleasure to be here. <laughs> so uh, we first heard about the Green Girl last year uh, when you had your Kickstarter campaign, and that's when I found out about it because I'm a huge behind-the-scenes type person, and when I heard there was a documentary on Susan Oliver, I took some interest in it, and when I read up more about it, I knew it was something that I definitely wanted to contribute to. So we've been we've been talking about it on the on the podcast here a bit as news comes out. Well, I really appreciate that. Let me start by saying that, and um, and I'm sorry the news has come out so slowly over time. It's been a real labor of love, and it's almost literally a one man operation. But we are almost done, and and yeah, it's it's just something. Once I started to really dig into her, I felt real, someone really ought to do. It. I was kind of shocked no one has up till now done mm-hmm. something like this. She's just one of those actresses where, like, the more you read about her, the more fascinated you are about her life and her career overall. Because yeah. b- before this project, I just knew her from Star Trek. Well, same here. Star Trek and that episode of The Twilight Zone with Roddy McDowell, where he mm-hmm. crashes on Mars and he mm-hmm. ends up in a zoo and she's the bait. Those are the only two things I ever knew she had done. And... uh I guess you could credit this with the iPhone for how I stumbled upon this. I mean, I was rewatching the Menagerie, um, actually not the Menagerie, the Cage, the original mm-hmm. Star Trek pilot on Netflix about two and a half years ago. And I, I have a bad habit now of pulling out my iPhone during shows, especially old shows, <laughs> and looking actors up on IMDb, which is horrible, by the way. It really distracts you from what you're watching. We're becoming a, a whole nation of ADD people, but. Um, But anyways, um, I looked her up on IMDb, an internet movie database, and I was just shocked. I I saw it's like an eight-page resume. I mean, you can't – there's almost no show you can name from the 60s in particular. Even the first half of the 70s, she wasn't on at least once. And I'm a little bit appalled at myself that I was not aware of that because I'm usually pretty up on things like that. Mm -hmm. She kind of – and I think that's one of the reasons that that she's been largely overlooked and people aren't aware. She was kind of like a chameleon. And she could do anything acting-wise and could kind of go in and out of these shows and no one ever realized it was the same person or that it was her or they did, but it, they never really knew the name. And she somehow just got overlooked, you know? It's almost like one of those people, like, you go, I know that person from somewhere, but I can't 
really tell. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And then I start you start reading some of her biography about some of the other things she did. She was a very accomplished pilot, air, air aircraft pilot, mm -hmm. flew a single engine plane across the Atlantic in 1967 and I don't think there were a lot of women flying single engine planes period, let alone across the Atlantic in 1967. She's really ahead of the curve in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So and then on top of all that, um, I noticed pretty quickly she had done a short film in the latter half of the 70s, and that was pretty rare back then. It wasn't like now where everyone's got all their home, you know, you can do more at home with, with consumer equipment than you could with studio equipment 25 years ago almost. And, and I, I figured out pretty quickly she was an original member of the AFI Directing Workshop for Women, which is still around and is still kind of considered a, a big deal. I've, I've mm -hmm. actually gone to their showcase some years out here in L.A. So she was a founding member of that, one of the originals chosen for that. Well, she's clearly a, a pioneer. So what were um, your big motivations to make this documentary, just finding out more about her? Well, and I, I kept having all these off-ramps where I'm like, okay, maybe it's just me. I'm a little bit Vena crazy. I'm a little bit Green Girl crazy, and, <laughs> and this, this really isn't a good idea. I wrote a, an email to Leonard Maltin very early on. Um, everyone knows Leonard Maltin. You know, he's yeah. like one of the biggest kind of mainstream critics. And I, because I, I, I wrote to him and I said, is it just me, or was she like kind of an unusually good actress in this, and something about her that's a little different? And he wrote back and saying, no, I always really liked her. I thought she was great. Um, so I, I thought, okay, it's not just me. And then I, I checked out her biography. She wrote an autobiography in 1983, and I checked it out from the L.A. Uh, library. They have one copy. And mm -hmm. I said to myself, okay, I'll read a chapter. If this thing is no good, I'll just return it, and that'll be that. It was fascinating, and she just comes across so charming and, and interesting and different. And I just was really taken with her as a person after having read that. And then then, then I started realizing, God, a lot of the contemporaries she, you know, she associated with if they're not dead already, they're they're quite old. And I thought, mm -hmm. God, someone ought to document her life, and they better start doing it now, because um, a lot of the people you could talk to are not going to be around much mm -hmm. longer necessarily. So at the time, I just got a camera and some recording equipment. I wasn't even sure if I was doing a book or a documentary, but I thought someone's got to get these first-person stories recorded before it's too late. And so that was the genesis of it. Great. So how did you uh, decide on the name for the documentary? Well, um, I figured it was probably the thing she's recognized for more than anything else, especially it dawned on me pretty quickly. Um, I talked about this with Larry Nemechek, who's a pretty noted authority of all things Star Trek, and he's like, hey, you're right. Um, you think about it, a lot, all of the first season, I believe, or most of the first season, and a lot of the second season episodes, too, the very last thing you see of original Star Trek is that picture of Vina posed as the green girl with the Desi mm -hmm. Lou. Mm -hmm. And so, literally, her face has been seen as that around the world, probably on a daily basis, ever since the thing went into syndication. And um, I think it's by far the thing... Um, more people would know her for than anything else. I mean, some people would argue her run on Peyton Place. Yeah. People know her for that. Older people know her for that. People who remember Peyton Place. Um, but I don't. Th I think it's like hands down Star Trek more than anything else. So, and it's just kind of catchy. The Green Girl, you right. know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I just also I think it's one of those classic images of '60s pop culture is that the Green Woman, the original Green Orion Slave Girl. Yeah, I know that's, even as a kid watching Star Trek, uh, that that image, you know, is just, like, just the green girl, and 
I, I mean, there's something mysterious there, and I, I think even Susan Oliver had that kind of mystery about her, like, like you said. Yeah. Well, it's funny, too. And um, she describes Gene Roddenberry approaching her. Um, they were both at uh, a studio, and uh, she was shooting something, and he was, I think, in the development stages of the pilot, the original pilot, and he approached her, and, and, and who, I can't imagine anybody else. Supposedly there was another, there was a list of people. I think Barbara Eden might have been on the, li the list, but she really was. Who else would you approach to play something that's five different roles? At that time in her career, she was hugely prolific on TV as, as the guest star of choice, if you wanted a good-looking young woman, um, mm -hmm. who had a huge range acting-wise. So it, it's just no, no coincidence she ends up getting that part for what's at the time is the most expensive pilot in television history in this kind of groundbreaking experiment. So she was perfect for it. And I, I just, I'll throw out, this might be heresy in some circles, but I do believe she's part of the reason they didn't accept that pilot. Because quite frankly, I think she's better than anyone else in it. Even our friend Mr. Nimoy, I don't think he quite found his character yet. He's just a kind of a, a, a dorky guy with ears who <laughs> smiles when he sees a stupid flower. I don't think there was any of that stoicism yet in the character. And... Um, mm -hmm. And if, I don't know, if I'm just shelled out more money than anyone's ever spent for a pilot before I'm NBC and I'm the studio, and I realize the best person in the episode is never coming back because she was a guest star, I don't think I'm going to fund that one either. So, you know, I, and I, I think that was for the best of the series. I mean, once they brought Shatner and the rest of that cast in and re did the reboot, I think it, it I don't think it ever would have taken off with Jeffrey Hunter as the lead, quite frankly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and it's so great that they were able to reuse that footage and reuse her performance with the the menagerie two parter. That's nothing short of brilliant. The fact that they were able to write an, an enveloping story that worked around that. It really is amazing because it's it got to seem impossible at first, right? I mean, it's the mm -hmm. wrong cast. Everything looks different. That, that was a brilliant piece of work. And for, from her standpoint, you got to remember a lot of them, um, any, anybody now looking back on it 50 years later shows up at the conventions with their photographs who was in an episode and they get autographs. That was two, three, five, in her case, maybe a couple of weeks of work on a very busy schedule where you're doing things like that constantly. Mm -hmm. and, and no one knows that this is anything other than another of 50 TV shows you're doing, right? Yeah. And then to succumb, and then it gets not picked up, and I think she got paid, and she assumes that's that. And it's amazing two years later it just shows up out of the blue. And quite frankly, I'm not even sure if she was aware of it at that time either. She probably got a residual payment, but mm -hmm. um, she lived up in the hills off of Laurel Canyon, and I don't believe she even got TV reception, quite frankly. So <laughs> ironically, this woman who worked a lot in TV, I don't think ever really watched herself on TV. I think it took a number of years the significance of it to catch up. Because as we all know, the series did okay, but got canceled after three seasons. It was really not till the early 70s that I think they realized what they had on their hands. Yeah. And of course, The Menagerie, her episode is, I remember, because I grew up in that era, um, that was a big deal when The Menagerie was on. And they would go out of their way to advertise, The Menagerie's on, this is a special one, you know, and it was the biggest deal of Star Trek reruns. And I mean, arguably, like, like you said, she is one of the best parts of that episode. 
I think she really is. Yeah. I think she really is. The Talosian's great too. Meg Willie, um, she was always fantastic. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, I, she just really and she she brought that to a lot of her work. Um, that was one of the fun, the fun things about this was going out and tracking down all of her work, which is some of very hard to find. Uh, a lot of it never went into syndication. Some of it's slowly mm. coming out on DVD, like her three episodes of Route 66. She did four Virginians, four wagon trains. Um, and, and I love all these shows now that I'm looking at them for the same reason I love original Star Trek uh, more than all the others. Is It's a group of actors. Um, it's mm-hmm. actors who trained with some of the, the giants of theater in New York in the 50s. People she studied with Sandy Meisner, Sanford Meisner, uh, and Martha Graham, and, and a lot of them did that. And then they come to Hollywood, and they're hoping they're going to be in movies, and what they all find yeah. is there's very little opportunity there, and there's a ton of opportunity in television. But they're great actors. It's just I, it's very exciting to see all that. And you see all these people, some of whom became big stars, people like Robert Duvall, Clint mm-hmm. Eastwood, Burt Reynolds. She worked with all of them on TV before they became movie stars. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned that it, it was it's kind of hard to find some of her older shows because they're not in DVD or wasn't in syndication. Was that one of your bigger obstacles when putting together this documentary? It was in two senses. Number one, getting access to the material to begin with, and number two, getting access to halfway decent copies of the material, which are not necessarily the same thing. Um, as it turns out, there's quite a, a little underground of Susan Oliver interest, um, and as, a, as an indicator of that, um, you, some, anyone listening might want to go on eBay and just type her name in. You'll find something like seven or eight pages of, of active listings of people selling Susan Oliver stuff, mostly old photographs. It turns oh, wow. out she was one of the most photographed women of the 60s. Um, anytime she was on TV or anything, a lot of publicity photos of her. And um, so I was slowly over time via eBay, via other things. There's a fan site some guy set up from her, for her back in Ohio. And there's a small group of people who collect stuff of hers. And uh, that was, by the way, another thing that interested me. I have the professional version of IMDb. And that version, when you look someone or something up, um, it has a number rating. And that number, uh, if you're like Brad Pitt and you just had a movie open and you look Brad Pitt up, it'll be number one. It means people have been looking up Brad Pitt constantly. Um, Her number, the week I started, was somewhere in the 5,000s which is a really amazing number. There are a lot of working actors you see all the time on TV who would be happy with 5,000. And she's been dead 23 years, and her number, I think her number this week is like 5,100 or something. It's it's gone as high as 3,500 occasionally, which is better than a lot of working actors today. And that told me people are looking her up all the time. Um, and they are because they're seeing her all the time. One of the things that's happening now, by the way, you're probably aware of it because you guys are in Major City too, with the, the high-def broadcast, you've got those .2, channels yep. tagged on. And I know here in L.A. we've got, I think, four of them, um, MeTV, yep. Antenna yeah. TV, Cozy, and then yep. there's yeah, one out there. Yeah, and they are showing all those shows that she was in. Yeah, it's amazing um, how many of those channels. Yeah, so you look, you look her... 
people are looking her up constantly. Like I can look her up on IMD Pro and it, it tells you who else they're looking up. And this week I just looked at her profile. They're also looking up Robert Duvall and Roddy McDowell and Lee Daniels, which mm -hmm. Robert Duvall and Lee Daniels would be from Refugitive episode. Mm -hmm. So that must have just rerun. And Roddy McDowell, that obviously means the Twilight Zone episode just reran. Um, other weeks, it's the guys from Rawhide. They're looking her up with them. So you can always tell what she's just been in, and people are constantly looking her up because she really, she's like, wow, who is that? Or what else did she do? She just really stands out when you see her. Yeah, she definitely leaves an impression on people. Yeah, yeah. Well, she, she should have been... Uh, a, a big star. She was given a seven-year, two-picture-a-year, non-exclusive contract with Warner Brothers in '57, which meant she was free to do anything else she wanted. That's almost unheard of, um, the non-exclusivity part. And then she um, she was not happy with what they were doing with her, which wasn't much. I think they wanted her to be in Up Periscope with James Garner, and she turned it down to do a play on Broadway and broke the contract. And there's a theory we explore a little in the documentary that that may have killed her because uh, this was still the studio system, and Jack Warner was a very vindictive man, and uh, he he could see to it that you didn't really get that much of a shot in movies after doing mm. something like that, even if you weren't going to work for Warner Brothers. Those those studio heads were all pretty tight knit circle, um, so she may have shot herself in the foot there. But that's, I mean, I'll talk to people that are like, that's exactly her. I mean, she, she didn't care about things like that. She was not going to be told what to do. Very independent. Very independent. Now, aside from uh, the footage, what were some of the other major obstacles in, in trying to put the documentary together? Obviously, probably the funding, for, for one. Funding was tough. Um, we did have our Kickstarter. We didn't do as well as it looks like we did. What ended up happening on Kickstarter is... Um, None of the money comes till the, the program ends, uh, the, the campaign, and then um, some credit cards started being rejected. Now, thank God Kickstarter doesn't hold that against you, and they, they still let me have whatever money did come in. We ran a secondary Indiegogo campaign more recently for a smaller amount. That one went very well. I've kicked in a lot of my own money, and then there have been a couple of private donations here and there that have come in kind of because of the publicity we generate. Um, so yeah, that's been very tough, and and one of the ways that translates into being tough is I end up having to do an awful lot of the work because I have time but not money, so <laughs> I end up doing the work of five or six people, which at times has been a little tough, but uh, we're almost there, um, and uh, so that's been challenging. I would say the other thing that was somewhat challenging was was getting people for to interview, you know. Um, although that ended up working out well, we have forty different people we interviewed. And, wow. uh, that's awesome. By the end, I was really actually pretty happy some of the people didn't say yes because I don't know how the heck we would have fit them in. <laughs> we got to the point, the last three interviews, we already had a semi-locked cut, and I'm looking at the editor and I'm going, okay, uh, we can use five things from this person and we can only increase the runtime by one minute. <laughs> and I think with the last three <laughs> interviews, that's what we did, each of them, you know. Um, but we were really at the point where we just couldn't let it get any longer. How, how long does it run? Uh, without end credits, which I'm working on right now, it's 93 and a half minutes. So end credits will add several minutes to that. We were hoping to get it down to 90, but that's close. Um, when we originally assembled the thing, um, and we had a rough screening for some people who gave us a bunch of written feedback in August, I think we were at two hours and nine minutes. So uh, oh, wow. it's just a, so much she did in her life. Um, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, including just, I mean, all the work, but but even just the, the, the ins and outs of her life. You know, she had this whole thing in the 80s where she was trying to direct on TV. She did direct a MASH. That was another thing that jumped out at me. There's, you'll hardly find any women 30 years ago that were directing. I think yeah. someone would say you'll hardly find any now. Um, it's still overwhelmingly white and male, but it was, I mean, at best, maybe 15, 20% women now. We're talking more like one, two percent women thirty years ago, and she was one of the very few that got a few shots. But that was very hard. She didn't really get a chance to do much more than a couple. Uh, Next Generation wouldn't let her direct, um, and I think that was a Paramount decision. They told her she lacked the necessary special effects background. I talked to Gates McFadden. We didn't end up getting a chance to interview her. Gates directed, as you probably know, one of the last seven or so episodes in the last season um, mm -hmm. of, of Next Generation. She said, look, I came in already having extensive theater experience and directing experience. None of the other cast did. Um, and I was asking for all seven years, or I, I think she was gone the second season, so maybe not that year, but from, from, from day one she was asking to direct. And before they finally let her have a single episode, they'd already let Stewart and Frakes and Burton direct multiple episodes. Um, and none right. of those guys had directing experience. They just really... I mean, one guy, it was a wonderful quote in the documentary, uh, Gary Conway. You might remember from Land of the Giants. Yes. Um, she, he and Susan worked together on Burke's Law before Land of the Giants. Gary said, you, you got to realize at that time, the idea of a woman directing was like the idea of a woman playing professional football. It was that bad. I mean, it's just, no one, it doesn't occur to anybody, why would a woman think she could direct or want to direct? I mean, and that's unfortunately what Susan Oliver and all those other women of that era were up against. And it is kind of the sad part of it. You're valued only while you're young and good-looking. And then uh, people told me this in the interviews. They say, once you hit 40, you, might, you better hope you marry a producer because you're done. You're done. You, there's just no more place for you. And that's that's really reprehensible. Wow. Was one of the first roles that you saw Susan Oliver in, was, was that Star Trek? Was that... I'm pretty sure it was. I mean, I, I remember Star Trek when it was first run. I was a little kid. We used to call it Mr. Spock, but I remember watching it that far back. So I'm certain that was the first thing. I, and I do remember watching that. I remember being horrified as a little kid in that scene where Jeffrey Hunter's writhing around in that molten whatever. You know, um, Probably was not appropriate toddler viewing, but I do remember. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure that's the first thing I ever saw her in, yeah. I was actually surprised to see that she was in that Twilight Zone episode that you mentioned because I love that episode, and I did never made the connection. Again, it's that chameleon thing where she right. can just be so many different people that she yeah. just kind of blends in, you know. And the amount of personalities that she had to do just in the cage right. um, shows yeah. her range of acting. Yeah. The other thing, by the way, that I think she was she was pretty impressive at, and a lot of these actors um, did a great job at. You know, it's one thing to, like, become a role and you spent six years in the jungles of Africa learning to be this character and then you shoot some big blockbuster. It's another thing to you're doing a role on one TV show and you get a call, well, we need you tomorrow on this other show, and you just show up and you become that. And then the following week you're somewhere else becoming something else and you don't really have any prep time or hardly mm -hmm. any prep time. Um, that's pretty amazing, and that's not something I think everyone can do. You know, if, if you're given a ton of time, you can get into a character, but when you're called on to do it, like sometime on a second's notice or, or a day's notice, that's 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 really something. Mm. So, in the um, when when is the premiere set? Are you still on track for February? Uh, 
We may have a premiere screening before February is over. I've got it out right now to the sound guy. He's doing a full sound, uh, editing the dialogue, and he's also trying to f clean up the audio on a lot of the clips, as well as the, uh, the video quality issues. There's audio quality issues. I mean, a lot of these shows were made for television where you had a, <laughs> a speaker the size of a silver dollar in mono, right? So we're trying to do what we can to make the sound of everything as good as possible. I think we're going to go back in the end of January and do one more touch-up on color correction. And uh, But there's there's a few more technical details. It may, it may, in terms of being available anywhere other than us actually screening it, roll out into March, April. Um, and part of that has to do with I'm waiting on a few film festivals, see if we get in. And sometimes their decision is based on whether or not you've released. So mm -hmm. if, if, if it's a question of hold off for a month or two because of a festival, we may do that as well. But I think for sure it's going to be out there before the first half of this year is over in all forms. Um, that's certainly what we're shooting for. So it's just about done now. But it is amazing how much work it takes to get from that version you got on your computer, which is essentially <laughs> done, to the viewable for the general public consumption version of done. That's a, that's a whole other level. So that's what we're working on right now. And legal issues. Legal issues. We're getting everything cleared at the moment, too. So. And that was what I was surprised about when I read about your Indiegogo campaign and then the extra insurance and all that stuff. There's so much behind the scenes that I didn't even know to get something released that I learned through this Indiegogo campaign. Yep, and I'm going through all of that right now. Yeah, I just I, I just had this, this one specialized lawyer who does a search to, is your title in existence anywhere else and would it in, and cause confusion? And yeah, we just got our insurance quote. I'm probably going to wire transfer the money for that next week. Yeah, it's all kinds of crazy little things you never would have thought about. Again, it's like, well, it's on my computer. It's ready to go. Let's just release it. Right. No. no. <laughs> the lawyer's going, no, no. <laughs> so after the planned premiere, uh, whenever uh, it is released, what are your further plans for the movie in terms of uh, distribution, maybe getting it to as many different film festivals as possible? Well, um, I'm actually not going to blanket film festivals. Um, that can get really costly and, and real fast. I mean, you, the, the, the submission, the entry fees for each yep. is really steep. Um, if you get in, then suddenly you're responsible for delivering a very high-end copy. It's not just a DVD at most festivals. It's like a very expensive, like an HD cam type tape or uh. DCP. And then you've got to travel there. You've got to send them a press kit. So I'm, I'm, I'm keeping it down to a handful of festivals for right now. I think our main thing is we want to get it out there to the public um, after that initial window of festivals or concurrent with it, DVD for sure, um, mm -hmm. and streaming for sure. And then I will try and get some help with, if I don't know if we might have a chance getting on some cable channel, something like that, and then get a foreign sales agent and see if there's any foreign interest. Uh, of course, that's a whole other nightmare if we're not talking <laughs> about English-speaking foreign because then you've got to get a continuity script with everything that anyone says or has heard trans, you know, written out so that they can get people in their native language to translate it. That's a huge amount of work. And it's got to be time-coded so they know when it's said. Mm -hmm. It's it, so that's something I need to explore further. But, but there is a, still a lot of English-speaking foreign market out there. So, so but I know I know our plan is to make the DVD and streaming version available via the website um, ourselves. 
and then we'll see about those other venues and probably get some other people involved and try and get it out there to all the usual suspects like iTunes and uh, mm -hmm. Amazon. So, yeah, that's that's one thing I was gonna say. There's a lot of uh, Star Trek documentaries right now on Netflix, and I I think it would be really cool to see the Green Girl on Netflix or something major like that. I do too, and if you can figure out how that happens, let me know. I mean, this is a big mis it's a big mystery how stuff gets on Netflix. Um, and I believe the best bet from my research recently is you go with a content aggregator. You can't get on iTunes without an aggregator. They deal with about eight or ten of them. And supposedly that's really the only way you're going to get in, or else you go with a big sales agent or distributor who has a deal with, with Netflix. But I'm hoping that yeah, we can get it. Would be make perfect sense. It's perfect. You're right. It's a perfect venue for something like that. So after all is said and done uh, with the Green Girl, are you going to take a vacation, or do you have any plans for future well, projects? <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny. I never really thought of myself as a documentary filmmaker. I have a, a narrative feature previously. I got to tell you, indie film has been a, a, a just a money loser. I have made no money at it. So uh, I actually going to probably be going back to my old job soon. I haven't worked in a year. I took uh, work off last year to finish this. Um, I'm an aerospace engineer. I work in the um, you know, on satellites, and I'm probably going to be going back to that by the end of the month or next month. Um, and earn some money for the first time in a really long time. <laughs> so I, as far as the Green Girl, I'm hoping at best to make enough money back for, to cover the money I put into it. I don't ever really think it's going to go into profit. I mean, in, like I said, indies are just dying these days. And documentaries in particular, you know, there's very few that, quote, make money, you know. Mm. It's just not a, although I am not, I, just for the fun of it, by the way, uh, this gets back to your previous question a little bit, too. I certainly intend to show up at a Star Trek convention or two with stacks of my DVDs and a table, you know. I, awesome. I, I totally <laughs> see doing that. Yeah, just for the fun of it, if nothing else. But like I said, mostly I'm just hoping maybe I can make a little bit of the money I put in back. But I don't think this is ever going to be any big money maker. Well, who knows? Maybe maybe they'll someone will see it and go, "We need to put this on Netflix," and you know, maybe it'll take so. off. <laughs> I hope so. You know, but it's funny. It's you, you would. I, my last movie's been on Showtime over 200 times. I've never received a penny oh, wow. for that movie. I mean, really? there's a lot of other people that get paid before the filmmaker, mm. and the money, the money these days is not much. Um, really, brief aside, um, uh, see, movies got really screwed up in this country. At this point, 80% of the revenue of a movie is coming from overseas. I don't know if you guys realize that. Wow. So Hollywood is really influenced about what kind of movies they want to make because of that. And really at this point, in terms of big money, really all they want to put the money into are tentpole franchise CGI-driven, effects-driven, either your your superhero-type Marvel stuff or Star Trek. Mm -hmm. Those are because they play well overseas, and overseas audiences um, want to see those American movies. They don't really want to see many other American movies because they make very good movies of their own, especially the Asian countries and India. They like their own movies, except mm -hmm. that they can't do those big, big CGI-driven effects-laden movies. So that's the only thing they really want to see from us. And if Hollywood's making 80% of their money from that, they're going to cater to that, which has really pushed indie film out the door. And that's why I think you're seeing this explosion of huge innovation on cable TV, shows like Walking Dead yep. or Mad Men or, or Breaking Bad, uh, because that, that, that energy, I think, used to go into indie film, and it, there's just no money anymore. They can do okay on cable now. Um, and a lot of those shows look like movies now. Yes, like, they're brilliant. It looks like a movie. Yeah. 
because what you're bringing is movie making talent to it. Look at all the people making and starring. I mean, that mm -hmm. that Netflix thing with Kevin Spacey that was uh, Fincher for God's sake. Um, What's that one yeah. called? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, um, yeah, I, I know which one. House you're of Cards. About. Yeah, yeah, House yeah. of Cards. But I mean, there's there's tons of them. Um, yeah, and it's so it's you know it's interesting to tie it back to the Susan Oliver thing. One of the things you, you look at a lot of what she was in, and a lot of them were in those TV shows. They're a bit schlocky, and they're not real great. Even if the acting is great, the the, the plot lines are simplistic. Part of that is television at the time, um, and Gary Conway again makes a really good point about this. There were only three networks then, and yeah. if you had a big show, you could have been seen by half the people in the country watching TV. I mean, huge audiences like. 30, 40, even 50 million people could have been watching you. Nowadays, I think you're doing really well on network. If I, th I heard Lost got 15 million one time at its peak. and um, But back in those days, 15 million was not good at all. I mean, all, all three networks could pull better than 15 million on, on a good night. So the, the, it's kind of a, what they wanted was right down the middle, appeal to the broadest possible audience, and fit well with your advertisers. Your advertisers are selling a world that's all about quick fix solutions, buy this and everything will be fine. And mm -hmm. what they want is television where everything's quick fixed within the end of the hour, the good guys always win, which I think is why Star Trek was a real conundrum for NBC and, it, and they canceled it. Because Star Trek was more of a shades of gray kind of show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they always won in the end, but sometimes they didn't always come out smelling like roses, right? Yeah, right. Um, and it, it was a lot of about man. In a way, it was a lot like Twilight Zone. Really deeper issues about mankind, and you know, maybe it looked like man against alien, but really it's man against man, and and it's the nature of human nature. And they didn't want that back then because they're trying to pack in 30 million viewers and get any sponsor to want to buy airtime on your show. Right. That's the nice thing about cable now. Um, you can have a niche audience. You're doing really well if you got a million viewers on one of those cable shows. So mm -hmm. you can have a very niche audience like Walking Dead. Not everyone. That's not everyone's cup of tea, but it's yeah. really good. And, and they're doing really well if they can pack in a million, two million viewers. That's phenomenally good. So in, in a sense, it's opened up the, the venue of TV in a way that wasn't available to actors like Susan Oliver or filmmakers that were involved in it. It really was a very cookie-cutter stamp them out. Mm -hmm. Which again is why Star Trek is so great, the original. I think it really rose above what it was chained to at the time for the amount of time it was allowed to be on the air. Yeah, it was definitely an innovator, and I'm really glad that Susan Oliver was kind of at that ground floor uh, for Star Trek because, you know, just what a great story. And I'm really looking forward to the documentary. I can't wait to get my uh, copy, DVD, or. Streaming, I forgot which plan I had, but uh, I, I can't wait to see it. Well, thank I think you. it's going to be great. I'm really proud of it. It just really came together in a beautiful way. And I should give a shout-out to my editor, Amy Glickman-Brown. She went to NYU. She actually trained in Czech Republic for a while. Wonderful editor. I thought it was really important to get a woman uh, to edit it because I realized we were going to really find the story in the editing room, which we did. She also got a co-writing credit. And um, and she really brought a good perspective to it. And um, and also it was good because she's younger too and doesn't really know that era. So she mm -hmm. brought a fresh pair of eyes. And yeah, I'm really people are really kind of affected by it on, on an emotional level. And that's what I was going for. So I'm very happy with it. Yeah, like I said, I I can't wait to see it. I think it's going to be uh, something special and unique, oh, just you. just like Susan Oliver. So thank you. I know you talked about earlier about how. She had the ability to be a chameleon. 
in the role she had. Well, I was looking at pictures the last couple of days just, just because of that. And when I watched her in Star Trek, I never knew that she was the same girl playing the two, the two characters. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, no, that can't be the same person. And I looked at it earlier, and I'm like, yeah, it is. The eyes are the same, but the face, because of the green, it makes it look a lot different. Makes it look, you know, she looks more mischievous with that, you know, that green makeup for some reason. It just, it just does that to her. So I totally agree with that, that fact. I mean, she was a, ba- you know, what I just said. <laughs> yeah, no, she, even just, you look at I, all the photographs of her, she never quite photographed the same way twice. No. One of the actors I talked to, Peter Mark Richmond, by the way, um, you may not recognize a name, but if you looked him up, you oh, him, I mean, he was in everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of those deep-voiced Leslie Nielsen-type actors. Um, mm. In fact, he knew Leslie Nielsen really well. I'm sure they worked together a million times. And he said he saw her once um, uh, on a show they were doing in the makeup room, and he didn't even know who she was. Because, like I said, she looked different. I mean, a lot of it had to do with what they did with her hair and her makeup and how she carried herself. And she yep. could carry herself in very different ways. Really, really. It's funny, by the way. This is one of the, the stereotypes I confronted. People always said, oh, she was always the ingenue, which I started watching all the work. And I'm like, no, she wasn't always the ingenue. Sometimes she was the ingenue, and she was quite good at it. But she was often something very different from that. At that time, she was the bad girl, or mm-hmm. or the uh, the bad guy's mall, or uh, or the independent stand on her own two feet women. I mean, she did that a couple of times on Route 66, which it's pretty forward for that era. Um, mm-hmm. She she often didn't play the dutiful wife type or girlfriend type character. I mean, she would do that too. But she, again, to that chameleon thing, she really there was no one Susan Oliver role. She yeah. just did a lot of different things. So, which I think was kind of unique. A lot of them really got got into one kind of role. By the way, I should mention this too. The other thing, one of the reasons we don't know her so well, she never did a series. As her, I mean, the closest thing she did was Peyton Place for four months. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some reason to believe she may have been written out sooner than they intended by her own wishes. Um, she had at least three series offers. She turned them all down. She did. She really did not want to be tied down. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> but because of that. We don't know who she is. I mean, we even made the point. Would you even know who Florence Henderson was if it weren't for the Brady Bunch? She wasn't even really an actress. No. She was a singer, mm-hmm. you know? Well, we're all going to know, and I could totally see Susan Oliver phoning that role in. I mean, she would have been great, you know? Um, I mean, she just, but she didn't want to be tied into something like that. Um, same thing happened in the mid-'70s. She, uh, she had not worked for a while. She did, jumped into the AFI with both feet, and... Um, then her agent convinced her to go read for a part on um, Days of Our Lives. It was a, a character had been a recurring character for 10 years that decided to leave the show. Susan beats out 134 actresses and gets the part. Oh. And, and I think they're assuming she's now going to be there for the next 10 years. <laughs> she bails after eight months. Mm-hmm. And I think the woman they got to replace her stayed for like 10 years or something like that. <laughs> but I, she just really couldn't. I mean, I think she she's willing to work really hard and intense for short periods of time. But she did not want to be tied down to anything that was going to like, now that's is this how it's going to be kind of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it be in the movie world with a contract or a series on TV, she just, just didn't want to do it. So, I have a question. Who was your favorite person to interview during this whole process? Oh God! Um, with I, I know there's probably a t- I know there's a, probably a ton of favorites that you have, but yeah. Uh, 
Well, and, and some of it, too, is a function of how much time I got to spend with them. Um, John Gilmore, he's a, he was an actor back in the 50s. He's very famous because he was close to, uh, very close to James Dean. He used to room with Dennis Hopper. He knew McQueen in New York. when Susan knew McQueen, too. He used to try to date her, and then she was, like, having none of his crap, and, and then he ended up hitting her up. He ended up hitting her up for money because he never had any money, so he'd borrow wow. money from her all the time because um, he was another Meisner student. But uh, And Gilmore has nothing to say, good to say about most of those people. James Dean he does, but the other two, nah, he hated those guys. But he, he loved Susan. They, they knew each other briefly in New York, and they did a show called The Lineup in 59, and they got kind of close, but... Nothing ever quite happened between them, almost, but not quite. But he always stayed kind of in touch with her on and off over the years. Mm -hmm. And I spent a lot of time with John, talking and theorizing. What, why would she do this? Why did she do that? Um, so I got very close with him, and he was a really interesting cat. I still keep in touch with him. Gary Conway, Land of the Giants guy, he was a lot of fun. He has a, a vineyard up in Central California. And... He loves to talk, and he's fascinating. I We got there and stood there in the tasting room of his vineyard for 45 minutes just talking, <laughs> just standing there. And he's like, well, maybe we ought to do this interview. I have spent eight hours with him and his wife. Um, and his wife is a former Miss America. McKnight hmm. um, is her last name. I think she was a 1958 or so Miss America. So that was a lot of fun. They were, they were really fascinating people. I'm trying to think who else. Roy Thinnes um, from The Invaders. Um, oh, okay. I yeah, I, I went out to Memphis and interviewed him, and he was a lot of fun. We we had a we only spent several hours together, but I, I talked to him on the phone at length a few times too, and he was he was a really neat guy. Um, and I I feel bad because I know I'm like skipping a lot of people. There was a guy in in, in Long Island. Um, uh, Mark Topaz, he's a broadcast historian, and he was just a wealth of information. I've had a lot of wonderful conversations with him since then and before. Mm -hmm. uh, big Susan Oliver fan, and I uh, knew a lot of stuff about her. Um, and I'm sure I'm skipping people who also were wonderful, but they, there were some great people there. David Edison from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Captain oh, yeah, Crane yeah. of the Flying Submarine. Uh, I had seen some pictures out on the web of them together. Turns out they both were studying under Meisner at the same time, and they used to date. Um, and uh, that was kind of sad, by the way. It tells you a little bit about how things work out here, and people get busy with their own thing. He didn't know she was dead. Oh, they, had, wow. they probably hadn't been in contact since the late 60s, but he just assumed she was going along doing her thing. He's about 85 now, maybe even 86 almost. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, uh, he didn't know she was dead. Wow. That was a, uh, yeah, that was, and he said, I feel real bad about that. He figured out he must have been out of the country when she died. And he, it just, it, it was such an underreported event. I mean, I, I think it showed up a little blurbs in a few newspapers. One local news reporter had it on the news, and that's about it. That's kind of how she wanted it, in a way. She was very quiet about it when she did die. Um, well, I mean, even it seems like death can't stop her from showing up, like you said. I mean, no. <laughs> how, well, how well searched she is in uh, IMDb. Yeah. I, I think that's incredible. Well, and I think it's something none of them, again, same thing with Star Trek. They're showing up 50 years later with their stack of photos. I don't think anyone had any idea that this was a thing, that there was any kind of residual income to be had other than a couple of reruns right away and mm -hmm. you know, in, the, in the, the season or two following. And maybe you could sell those films overseas at bargain basement prices, because that's just pure profit. 
which led to a lot of animosity in a lot of other countries because we yeah. could undercut what they could yeah. make their own shows for. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think anyone had any notion that, 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 and that's not just in television or movies, it's also um, music. I don't think until movies like Easy Rider and American Graffiti, anyone had any idea the amount of money that could be made licensing old songs. I was watching a documentary about The Who, and Pete, Pete Townsend, he had a friend of his very close to him that was very influential in a lot of his music in the early 70s, said, you, you guys don't realize the value your catalog's going to have, and they didn't. They thought the mentality was, this is for immediate consumption, no one's going to be listening to this or watching this two years from now. Mm -hmm. and I couldn't be more wrong, especially now. You know, it's amazing, and I think it's only going to get more so as we get more and more wired, and it's right. easier and easier to just archive everything for immediate demand, you know. So it's it's kind of a, a wonderful occurrence in that sense, because I, I think it's important not to forget these things and these people. I mean, a lot of them, they gave their lives to this, and I think Susan Oliver gave her life to this, mm -hmm. whether she intended to or not, and it kind of chewed her up. I've thought about this. If she was a very bright, capable person, and um, she wound up in New York studying under Meisner because her father couldn't afford to send her back to Swarthmore for her sophomore year. And I think about it, if, if she hadn't been that unfortunate for that to happen, and she had stayed there and gotten a college degree and done anything other than acting, law, mathematics, computer science, medicine, etc., by the time she's in her 40s in the 1970s, I think she her career would have been taking off. That's usually when you do something like that where you've really got that experience playing. And I think it was a time where maybe society would have slowly let let her have a career in that. Instead, mm -hmm. she winds up in the one thing where she's not going to have any career now that she's 40. We're done with you. You're a woman. You were killed when you were younger. You're older. There's no other place for you in this industry. You're certainly not going to direct. I mean, that's, that's so unfortunate. She chose mm -hmm. the one thing that was going to minimize her as she got older, you know, or one of the things that would most minimize her when she got older. It really is unfortunate. Well, it's a fascinating story, and I really look forward to seeing it. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I, I, I look forward to everybody finally getting a chance. I feel bad <laughs> it's taken this long, but it takes what it takes. Yeah, I think it's going to be worth the wait. Well, thank you. Thank you. And thanks for this. This is great. Yeah, uh, yeah. Thanks for thanks for participating. My pleasure. Yeah. So uh, this episode will be airing uh, this upcoming Monday. Uh, so we'll be uh, posting this uh, on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, and everything else that we can. <laughs> it, it'll be all over Twitter. We're gonna yeah. tag the Green Girl and do all of that. So I appreciate it. And. Um, in terms of point of contact, if anyone wants to keep in touch with the movie and what's going on with it, go to our website. That's the best focal point, okay. which is just uh, www.thegreengirlmovie.com. Um, and I'm trying to be good about keeping it fairly regularly updated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one more thing i got to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. All right. All right. Thank you. Thanks, George. All right, guys. You have been listening to the Starfleet Escape Podcast on the Four-Eyed Radio Network, where you can catch a new episode every other Monday. You can find us on the web at sfescapepod.com. Follow us on Twitter at sfescapepod. Like us on facebook.com slash sfescapepod. And add us to your circle on Google Plus by going to google.sfescapepod.com.
this has been a proud production of the 4-Eyed Radio Network. Check out more shows on 4 Radio.com. Beam me up, Scott.